Psalm 104. We'll be reading the entire Psalm 1 through 35. So join with me uh, if you will. Starting with verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, he minist- his ministers a flaming fire. Verse 5, he set the earth on its foundation so that it should be never moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. Verse 13, from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The water is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to work and to do his labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both great and small. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. 
Verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of God. Uh, Thanks, Eddie, for that reading. He was joking with me earlier. If he should roar when he does the young lion. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, you, you should read your Bible like that. You really should. You should read, especially the Psalms, slowly, and you should imagine. Try to feel the power of the inspired poem. This Psalm begins with the words of self-encouragement. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The the psalmist is is trying to stir himself up to worship the Lord, but but it's not here because he's apathetic or feels guilty that he's emotionless toward the Lord. Now, not that that's always the case. The psalmist is elsewhere uh, able to say, "Why, why are you downcast, O my soul? hope in God. But, but here, the circumstances are different. The psalmist is reminding himself why he worships. Why the, why the worship of God is so important to his life. He doesn't, he doesn't want to content himself with just going through the motions. Neither do you, Right? You don't want to just show up for another Sunday and just go through the routine. He wants to see the worship of God rising up from within, from his soul, from his heart, from his life. He wants to be captivated with God. This morning, we have just wrapped up our series on the kingdom of God. Next week, we're going to begin, Lord willing, a study through the book of Ezra. Um, But this is an addendum to our last series, uh, to our last sermon series on the kingdom of God. Because one one of the concerns that I have for us, even as I long for us as a church to dig deeper into the reality of kingdom of God. I don't think that's a subject that uh, we have exhausted by any means. But, but in the midst of all that, here's a danger. Here's a danger I want us to watch out for. The focus of the kingdom of God is not so much on kingdom as it is on God. I don't want us to be so captivated by the reality of the kingdom as much as we're captivated by the reality of the king. To be captivated by the king 
is what it means to be rooted in worship. And when I say the word worship, I mean, yes, uh, what we're doing now together when we gather once a week on the Lord's Day. I mean that, but I mean more than that. Not less than that, but, but more than that. I, I mean also the reality of who we are every moment of our lives, every day when we wake up. Are you a worshiper of God? And why do you worship? And what does it mean to worship? A, a proper worship of God depends upon a proper vision of God and his activity in the world. Um, for a call to worship, I, I took us to Isaiah 6. A, a proper worship of God depends upon a proper vision of God and God's activity in the world. We must be convinced, in other words, that God is great, that God is near, and that God is blessed. The greatness of God, the nearness of God, the blessedness of God. I I want us to ponder from this psalm these three particular attributes of who God is. God is great, God is near, and God is blessed. (laughs) Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's a strange way of speaking, perhaps, unless we understand a particular attribute of God known as his blessedness. So the Lord is great, the Lord is near, the Lord is blessed. So let's begin this morning with the first attribute of God like us to consider. The Lord is great. Because in order to worship God as we should, we need to have a sense of the greatness of God. So long as God remains small, worship will be more duty than delight. We will go through the routines of worship without knowing the realities of God's greatness. So the psalm begins here again, direct address to God in verse 1. O Lord my God, you are very great. The word greatness is one of God's attributes. But how do we know that God is great? What do we mean when we say God is great? The word itself in English has, I think, lost something of its meaning due to overuse. We describe lots of things as great, so the word has become more subjective than what it is when it describes God. What is great to me might not be great to you. Some people think that cilantro is great. I understand that there's some of you who have a bad gene and you think it tastes like soap. And I don't understand this, but apparently that's what happens. Colby Nicholson, are you in the room? That's what Colby always says. And it's like, what? So that's what greatness sometimes means to people. But when we speak of the greatness of God, this is not something that can be left to personal taste. It may be that some here this morning are simply overwhelmed with the greatness of God, while others here honestly just don't see it at all. But the psalmist is not so interested in this particular psalm of describing why God is great to him. He wants us to see God is great whether anyone ever notices or not. It does not depend upon personal taste 
God is great. This is reality. So perhaps a better word, and theologians usually use this word to describe this particular attribute of God. It's the word transcendent. God is transcendent. The, the idea is also captured by the word holy. The angels, we are told, when they stand around the throne are proclaiming to one another, great, great. In other words, holy, holy is the Lord. In other words, God is in a category all by himself, distinct, separate, other. God is not like anyone or anything else that we've ever met. So we are then warned and we have to be careful about trying to compare God to anything. When God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, they sang a song in which they said this, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or in the words of our psalm this morning, this God is not just great, he is very great. Gedol me'od in Hebrew, he is very great. The difficulty of grasping the unique greatness of God, a a greatness to which nothing can be compared, should not keep us from trying to get a glimpse, from trying to see what can't be seen. So we need an exercise in transcendence. You and I are used to seeing common things, but we long to see great things. We hunger for it. It's a hunger that only God can satisfy. The story of human sinfulness is the tragedy of trying to satisfy hunger with something other than God. These are the idols that we pursue. The other gods that wow us with their greatness. You've been trying them out this week. And so have I. More power, more pleasure, more things. We need a vision of God and his greatness, his transcendence, to get us out of the ordinary that never satisfy into the greatness of God. So in the first four verses of this psalm, the psalmist goes through an exercise to help him see the greatness of God. He, he speaks of God in majestic regal terms. Just look at his royal robes, the psalm says. What, what, what is God wearing? We're, we're in an exercise of transcendence. We're, we're trying to imagine. We're looking. What, do, what is God clothed in? What are his robes as a king? And the, the psalmist says, this is the only word he's got. He, he's robed with light. There's an aura of majesty that is infinitely brighter than the sun. So in other words, you look, but you can't really see, or you'll go blind, right? This is the greatness of God. Now look at his palace, the place where the king lives. Verse 2, he stretches out the heavens like a tent. And and verse 3 says, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. Now the word chambers is the same Hebrew word that in verse 13 is translated lofty abode. So in other words, where does God live? What's his palace? And the psalmist would say, well, it's kind of hard to say. Because just like Solomon observed when he built 
a temple for the Lord? He says, what am I, what am I thinking? Even the highest heaven could not contain him, much less this house or this imagination of what the palace of God must be like. This is the greatness of God. It's an exercise. We're trying to stir up and help us to see and, and be taken out of our ordinariness to see transcendence. Okay, so this is what God's robed in. He's robed in light, brighter than the sun. He's got a palace, which is bigger than you could possibly imagine because even the highest heavens can't contain him. What about his entourage? How does he travel? What's it like when the king goes on a trip? And here's what he says, verse 3. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Or as the psalmist says elsewhere, the glory of God or the testimony of his greatness goes out through all the earth. So in other words, you can't really ever see the entourage. He's traveling like wind. This greatness of God, you can't really ever see because it's everywhere. Because it's everywhere. So if God's greatness is like this, indescribable and comparable, what's the point of an exercise like the one the psalmist just did? What's the point, you might say, of worshiping a transcendent God? A God that you can't even really get your mind around. And here's the point. Here's the point. The point of it all is to help us in mercy get our eyes off ourselves. That's why we worship. We worship God because we are inherently built to look at ourselves. In our fallenness, in our fallen nature, we are people with our eyes on ourselves. And, th- and that's why we, need, why we need this, not just once a week in corporate worship, but day to day in quiet meditation. Worship is about centering our attention, even our imagination, on the great reality of God. It's one reason why worshipers of God through, through the centuries have, have wanted to build great cathedrals. It's a way of pointing us toward the transcendent realities of God. But whether you worship God in a cathedral or on your couch in a sanctuary or on your sofa, we desperately need to be centered on God and not on us or any other created thing. So the worship of God depends upon a vision of his greatness. The Lord is great. He's transcendent. But now notice, only the God of the Bible can be the rescue for our attention on ourselves. Only this God can succeed in getting us away from the ordinary because, ironically, this God is unique in another way. This God who is great, this God who is far above everything there is, (laughs) wonder of wonders, is also a God who is near, who is not far away at all. This God is great, not only because he's transcendent, but also because he's imminent. He's near. 
Now, when you think of God's transcendence, of his greatness, you might be tempted to think that this God is some abstract deity, unconcerned with the world that you inhabit. You might be tempted to think, what does God care about me and my problems tomorrow, right? If he's so transcendent, so majestic, when you think of something great like that, you think this person couldn't care at all about me, and you would be totally wrong. This God who is more exalted, more transcendent, more high above anything or anyone else is also at the same time just as near to you as he is far. In other words, nearer than you imagine as well. The word imminent means that God remains in and involved in the world. So while we are right to meditate on the transcendence of God, we also must meditate on his eminence. Yes, God is, also, is exalted high above everything, but he is also as near as he is far. Do you get this? Do you, it's perplexing, but you've got to grasp it all. A proper worship of God depends upon a proper vision of God and his activity in the world. So this God is far high above, but he's near Nearer than you could possibly imagine. And that's what the psalmist ponders in the bulk of this psalm. He meditates on the creation of the world. This psalm is in some way a, a, uh, a commentary, a poetic commentary on Genesis 1. And he does this because he knows that the earth is a special place in creation. The planet on which we live is a picture, however faint, of God's transcendence and his eminence. Think about it. We live on just a tiny fraction of all that exists. And yet this planet, teeming with life and abundance, what's it mean? Verses five through nine. We are reminded of how God brought dry land out of the chaotic waters that covered the earth in the beginning. With a word, he rebuked the waters, and they receded, forming continents and mountains and ocean depths. And so we're right to be curious and investigate how God might have done it, but we are never to lose sight of the maker as we study his mechanisms. Verses 10 to 18, we reflect on how God turned the earth into a hospitable place for life. God created a world that sustains life. Think of it. The life of the world in verses 10 through, I'm sorry, the life of the wild in verses 10 through 13, as well as the lives of domesticated animals and human beings. Isn't it amazing? In the far reaches of the forests and the jungles, those creatures that no one's even looking at right now, God ensures has a way of living. God does this, just as he does on the farms and in our human lives. Verse 15, it's a great verse, isn't it? Speaks of the products that are made from the raw elements of the earth. In the ancient world, the exemplars would have been wine, oil, and bread. You can put something else in there if you want, but this would have been an ancient world. This is like, man, the luxuries of life. God, the point, that's the point. God ensures that his earth is filled, as Spurgeon noted, not only with necessities, but also with luxuries. That which furnishes a feast 
as well as that which makes a meal. The splendor of God is evident not only in the sight of the stars so far above us, but also in the taste of the delicacies and good food or drink, or in the comforts of a hot shower after a stressful day. Do you see it? Verses 19 to 23, we are invited to ponder the gentle pull of night and day on all living creatures of earth. Here is, as one commentator writes, another subtle shade in the creator's design, a regularity that brings no monotony, but only enrichment and a built-in safeguard of the balance of work and rest, which is one of the creator's best gifts. Wow. This is amazing, this God. Who is this God so high, so far above? He's near, very near, nearer than you could imagine. You see, if we've learned anything from our study of the kingdom of God, it should include the understanding that God's kingdom is not something irrelevant to the daily routine of our embodied existence. The kingdom of God, if we're pondering it, Christians, should at the very least tell us that God and his kingdom is not something irrelevant to the daily routine of your embodied existence. It is this earth, complete with a tangible reality that is God's primary focus. What we find in our Bibles is a God who is very much concerned with his world and especially with the people in it. His plan is not to come and take us out of this world and into eternity. Get your mind right by the word of God. His plan is to reassert his sovereign rule over every part of this planet, redeeming it and restoring it forever. That's what God is up to. And that's why the climax of the Bible and the story of the world is the entering of God himself into time and space in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Because he's a God who's not only transcendent, he's a God who's imminent, who's near. The fully human God who came to reconcile us to God by his own achievement on our behalf. This Jesus is the long-awaited deliverer who came to banish ungodliness and take away sins forever. It is how God made a way to unite heaven and earth again. The transcendent God came closer to us than we could have ever imagined. He became one of us. He became one of us. He took on our flesh. He shares with us in our humanity. And so verse 25 of Psalm 104 reminds me of Paul's praise at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The psalmist says to God here, Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. We have just begun. When we ponder his transcendence and his eminence, we have just begun to scratch the surface of the riches of a God who is as near as he is far. Because you see, if you put these two things together, If you put these two truths about God together, that he is transcendent and that he is imminent, you're led to a third truth about God, one which is a natural and necessary conclusion from the first two combined. You see, if God is high above his creation, so high above that he is distinct and independent of it, then that means he needs nothing from it. He can't gain anything from the world that he made. He's transcendent. 
He doesn't need it. He's got everything. But add to that his eminence, the fact that God creates a world, a rich and beautiful world, which suggests that there is even more to God's bounty than you can imagine. And what do we, what do we think of God? What, what, what kind of God is this? What is his disposition? What's his, if you get around him, what would he be like? What's his personality, we might even say? What kind of a being must he be if he is transcendent over all that he made and yet nearer to it than we could imagine? And, and theologians have a word for this. They say that God, this is an attribute of God called his blessedness, or God is blessed. <laughs> what does that mean? It, to say that God is blessed is to say that God finds full and unending delight in himself, and in all that reflects his character. In other words, God is no idolater. He does not delight in anything more than in himself. So God has, God has never, I'm going to try to make this person, God has never experienced the disappointment of looking for satisfaction in something or someone other than himself. He's never experienced that. God has never been let down. Never. Because God has never for one second put his hope in anyone or anything that can disappoint. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't it be nice to live your life like that? Never dissatisfied, never disappointed, never let down. That would be a blessed life. And that's how God is. He's blessed. Now, now, what does this tell us about how we should worship God? It, it means do not think of the worship of God as something you do for God. You don't worship for his benefit. The kingdom of God does not come and you don't enter into it so that God now gets a little more satisfaction that he's missing out on. The proper worship of God can never have God only as the object, but also as the subject. He's not just a God to be worshiped. He's also a God who acts. He is a God who gives. It is God who gives to us, not us to him. It, it is more blessed to what? No, no, other way around. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And this God is blessed. He gives and he gives and he gives again and again and again. How blessed is this God? Now, getting this attribute of God is more important than you might think. Consider what Paul says about the blessedness of God in 1 Timothy 1.11. He calls the gospel, this is what he calls it, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Without the blessedness of God, we don't have a gospel. We don't have Christianity. We don't have good news. If God is not blessed, we are doomed. The perspective of Christian worship is that we come. Why are we here? Why do we gather on the Lord's day? Why, do you, why should you? Have a habit of your life of worshiping God 
privately, as a family, in all of life. Why should you do that? It's because God wants to give. We come to receive from God rather than to give anything to him. That's Christian worship. Verse 27, the psalmist speaks of creation's dependence on its creator. And here's what he says. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. This is the posture of the heart prepared for worship. We come like a hungry bird. Is that how you come today? Mouth open saying, I, I don't have, I'm this dependent. Come and fill me. Oh God, like you're the only one who can rescue me. This is the proper perspective and proper heart of worship. We come to receive from God what he decides to give. And when he gives, look what verse 28 says, when he gives and we receive, we are filled with good things. Because the blessed God is a cheerful giver and we receive much from his bounty. But how tragic it is for anyone to not receive from the blessed Lord how much we miss when we do not come with empty hands to the worship service of God. Look at verse 29. For God to hide his face, verse 29 says, is to remain empty-handed, not self-sufficient. The result of such poverty is dismay, which is the translation of a Hebrew word that means to be horrified to be out of one's senses at the impending doom. The only way to speak of such poverty, the psalmist says, is in the language of death. So you come unprepared to receive, thinking you can give in worship instead of receive from God, that you're the subject, not God. The only way to describe that kind of poverty is death. This is the great problem of human pride that wants to credit ourselves with anything that we possess when the Bible and even just a moment of clear-headed honesty will show us that you've got nothing unless it's been given to you from the blessed God. You are a dependent creature through and through. And if you can see this truth, if you can embrace this truth, then you are you're ready for the good news. Verse 30, the psalmist reflects on what happens when God sends forth his spirit. What happens when you are just open mouth, ready to receive whatever God wants to give? What happens when every morning when you wake up, you say, oh God, just come, give me what I need today. I trust you. You're a, you're a generous, you're a blessing, you're a giver. What happens? Here's what it says, verse 30. When God sends forth his spirit, creation, you see it? Life. When we read that the earth in the beginning was dark and void, we are meant to ask, well, then how is it that there is anything with life? Where does it come from? And you don't have to wonder long because Genesis tells us the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light and the rest is history. Christian worship is the same thing. It's centered on this giving of life from the life-giving spirit of God. Wherever there is death, darkness, void, you feel that in your life right now? No hope, desperation. Wherever there is death, 
there remains hope as long as the Spirit of God hovers nearby. And when God sends his Spirit, creation. This is Old Testament language of what we know more fully in the new. This is the language of new creation, of God renewing the face of the ground through the sending of the Spirit. This is, this is a taste of the kingdom of God in Psalm 104, right here. So who is this God who is transcendent yet imminent? We know who he is. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Who is this God who is blessed, rejoicing in his work of creation and new creation? He is Jesus the word of God who is God and was in the beginning with God. And what now should I do? The psalm ends by saying, oh, bless the Lord, rejoice, sing and praise, meditate on him, get your eyes off yourself. He is your delight. He is your affection. He is your satisfaction who can never disappoint and never let you down. There's a great hymn that's written based on Psalm 104. And I want to close by just reciting the first, the four, four of the five stanzas. It's called, O Worship the King. And it goes like this. O worship the King, all glorious above. O gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. O tell of his might and sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy is space. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Your bountiful care, what tongue can recite? It breathes in the air. It shines in the light. It streams from the hills. It descends to the plain and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain. So, frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in you do we trust, nor find you to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, forgive us for this week thinking too low of you. You are the exalted God. We have turned created things into objects of worship, and we've been disappointed. We've been let down. So we come hungry for the transcendent. And then we are met, we are encountered by a God who has come nearer to us, just as near to us as he is far. Indeed, had you not done that, we would never, ever, ever reach you. We could never travel far, high enough to find God God, this God, has come down, has stooped down, humbled himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He took on flesh. He became one of us. He knows our humanity. And he's come to save. He's not come to receive. 
He's come to give. What could we possibly give to him who has it all? So strip us of our pride this morning. We are hungry and we are needy. And we need to receive from the blessed God who gives cheerfully, joyfully, wonder of wonders over and over and over again, time and time again, the blessed God. We rejoice and we sing your praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.